We're going to be looking at a letter, a short letter in the New Testament called the, well, called Second Peter, we'll call it. This is a letter that does not get much airtime, not many downloads on iTunes, not many clicks on YouTube. But it strikes me as an important one as we think at the head of the year about changes that we might wish to have happen in our lives. I think we're people who instinctively want in some way to be better. We may not always want to be better in the right kinds of ways, but we want some kind of improvement. We realize there are deficits about, well, ourselves. There are shortcomings in how we respond to others that we don't wish were the case. There are fears that seem to strangle us when we're sitting there doing nothing. There's anxiety and there are bad habits that, well, they just feel like a, a noose around our necks. And so we're going to look at this idea of how can we change. And I think Peter is a good person to talk to us about this. And in this first chapter, gives us some ingredients for this change in a very admirable way. But before we talk about that, I want to just think with you for a second about Peter and what kind of references he has, what kind of experiences he has that have been documented, and you never think about this probably, have been documented for the whole history of the world after him to see. You know, this doesn't happen to you, but they happen to Peter, and so Peter's a guy who, when he came into initial acquaintanceship with Jesus, he was in a boat, because he was a fisherman, and Jesus had said to him, hey, guys, throw out your nets on the other side of the boat. And Peter said, dude, we've been out all night. The bass trucker hasn't located anything. We're exhausted. We've done, used up our stores of Levi Garrett. We got nothing left. That's chewing tobacco. Oh, he was a red man. fellow. Sorry. We don't have any juice left. We can't. We've been fishing all night. And Jesus, but he says this. But since you said so, we'll do it. So he knows something about trusting something Jesus says. So he throws the boat over. And no, not the boat, the net over the boat. And he catches so many fish that he, they can't even hardly reel it all in. So Peter, as one might expect, says, Woohoo! We've won the lottery. We're off to market. It's a bumper crop. I'm getting a new car. Well, he didn't likely say that because there weren't cars. But you know what? He actually didn't say that. You know what he did say? He said, O-M-G, literally. Get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Peter has had this experience of coming up into acquaintanceship with Jesus And being in the presence of what he began to identify as God himself in skin. And when he was there, he had the experience that C.S. Lewis says always happens when you get in the presence of God. You either see yourself as a small, dirty object, or you forget about yourself altogether. When you're really in God's presence, you don't do any bowing up. There's no flexing in the mirror in front of God. And Peter knew that. He experienced this, and his initial reaction was, I'm in the presence of someone so dazzlingly pure that I'm probably going to get melted by his dazzle. 
And so his only instinctive thing to say was, get away from me. I am filthy. Don't look at me. You're fluorescent light. You're showing up every ounce of imperfection in my life. And Jesus said, no. Not going to get away from you. Instead, he says, don't be afraid. From now on, you are going to participate with God himself. Peter says, I'm so filthy, you must get away from me. And Jesus said, no, in fact, I now enlist you to be an ambassador to catch men just like you caught all those fish. You're going to be a part of God's human earth reclaiming renovation project, even though you've asked me to get away from you. Well, that's encouraging to me. If you've known the, the sense, if your stomach has gnawed sometimes when you sing holy, 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 and you go, oh, gosh. You feel sick to your stomach ever? No, that's just me. You ever thought, oh, my gosh, if God's watching, if he looks and sees, or if someone out there knows the real me, ah, and to know that he's dealing with the Jesus And he's commending us, this Jesus, who says we have this faith that we've received that's as precious as ours. He knows this faith is precious because this Jesus is precious. This Jesus to whom you could say, get away from me, I'm so sinful. And Jesus says, nope, I'm not getting away from you. In fact, I'm going to ennoble you. I'm going to dignify you with a task on the planet, and you're going to be mine. Well, that's pretty amazing that Peter knows that, so it makes me want to listen to him. It makes me want to say, he might have something to say to somebody like me and to somebody like you. There's another story, of course, for Peter, midway through the Gospels, where Jesus is quizzing his disciples. Kind of a trivia crack game he's playing in the first century. Who do people say I am? And they're like, uh, Paul McCartney, um, Elijah, uh, Ringo Starr. John the Baptist, they're throwing out options, and then he says, no, but what about you, Peter? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And three lemons line up. Ding, ding, ding. He hits the jackpot, and God says this. Well, Jesus, God in flesh, says this to Peter. Blessed be you, Peter, because you did not come to know this from Wikipedia. This is not something that you discovered by your own inquisitiveness. You've been acted upon by God who has revealed this to you. God has has acted on you. He's, He's opened up the secrets of the universe and he's revealed them to you, privileged man. So Peter knew that, this kind of high, like, woo! I just know something about God. He's revealed himself to me. And then the very next, when they skipped on from the next Netflix episode, continuous play, you go from that episode to the next in the gospel, and you have Jesus saying to his disciples, hey, guys, let me tell you what's going to happen at the end. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law, but don't worry, because then I'm just going to be killed. But then I'm going to get up from the dead. And Peter drags him aside. Bold, loyal, fierce, undeterred, unafraid. He says, Lord, stop talking like this. That will never happen to you. And then Jesus says to him what your parents probably said to you when you woke up each morning. 
Hello, my little Satan. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. You're not thinking of this right. You're thinking from a very narrow perspective. You're thinking of this all wrong. You've got to open up and think of this from heaven's view. In a matter of one 22-minute episode, Peter is being acted on by God, and then the next minute he's being acted on by Satan. Well, that's also encouraging to me. Have you ever had an experience, for instance, where you realize, I'm kind of a sour fellow, or fella in Latin. And Thomas, puella, a sour puella. And I, I need help from God. I'm, I'm cranky. I'm cold-hearted. I'm, I'm snapping at people. I'm mean. I, I, don't, I don't like anybody. And so you think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go have a quiet time. I'm going to go spend time with the Lord and you get out your Bible, and blow off the cover of dust on it, and you open that app that hadn't been opened in a year, hopefully sooner than that, but, and, you, and you start reading the Bible, you read about the love of God, you read about loving each other, and you just start feeling a fluttery feeling maybe inside, and you're saying, Lord, help me to love my enemies! And you just feel this kind of, like this muscle milk of holiness coming over you, these amino acids pumping through your veins, and you're like, Yeah! I'm going, to be, I'm going to be so super cheery. Oh, I'm going to just smother people in compassion. And you're just feeling like, what a generous soul I am. You just feel so good. Like, I've just been acted on by God. And then you just, you, you just you go home. Or someone comes home. Or you go to the office, and you just meet up with one other human being. And then instantly... Your muscle milk of holiness is pulsating through you and making you, you feel like radiant and beaming with just Jesusness. All of a sudden, you're like, and you've been disfigured into this mutant in a bad Will Smith movie. And it happens so quick. You were acted on by God, and then all of a sudden, it feels like a demon's possessed you. And you think, what's wrong with me? Well, I think, well, then Peter might have something to say about that. Because he's done that. He's, you're Jesus. Jesus said, God's acting on you. And he says, shut up, Jesus. And he says, Satan's acting on you. And it all happened in 22 minutes. This is all Netflix time. You, you, you guys have seen Netflix. Okay. So I think Peter might have something to say to us. And we're going to be looking at that. And we're here at the end of this man's life. He's had some experiences with Jesus. They're fairly remarkable. So remarkable are they, so altering are they, that he has to commend him to us. And so he starts out and he says, here I am, Simon Peter, a servant and a sent out person from Jesus Christ. I'm writing to those who through the righteousness of our God and Father and our Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith that is as precious as ours. Do you think about your faith as a precious thing? as an exceedingly valuable, choice, prized feature of your life? I think Peter did, because he began to know that this was part of the way that he accessed God. 
This is part of the way he was resourcing himself to live on this planet. He later will say at the end, if you're not having a faith that's yielding all these other kinds of cascading virtues, then you're unproductive and ineffective in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus. He wants us to have faith that works in your walking around shoes. He wants it to be something that's so, such a treasure to you that it actually has bearing on what you are going to do on Tuesday afternoon at 1.40 in the afternoon. And what you're going to do on Saturday night and what you're going to do on Friday morning. And so he talks about this faith being something that is rather precious. So I'd ask you this as a starting point. If you want to change, if there are things about your life that you want, you want power for. Because that's one of the problems with changing is you just don't always have the wherewithal. You're get up and go, done, got up and went. And so you hanker for a hunk of cheese. Where do you get your get up and go when it's done, got up and went? Well, Peter would say that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us. See, Peter would say your faith is what accesses you to the power of God. Earlier in his first letter, he says your faith shields you by God's power. It's your Captain America shield. It's bulletproof. And it's like a boomerang. You can throw it and it'll bounce and decapitate people and come back to you and go get you a Dr. Pepper. Your faith is a shield, he says. Your faith is a, is a protection. Your faith is a resource. It's precious and valuable because it's got to be the main thing about you because it is what links you to the power of God. The Apostle Paul says a similar thing when he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, these guys have recognized something that I've been invaded by an alien force that God himself, the divine nature that I'm able to participate in, has taken hold of me. When we believe, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in us. And this faith then will become more and more precious to you as you you depend on it, as you nurture it. And so the question becomes, as you do kind of a practice audit, an inventory of your time spent, Does my life look like faith is precious to me? Is it theoretically precious or is it actually precious? It's okay if it's not precious to you right now. This is part of why when we get to hear somebody say, my faith is precious, faith is precious, you say, well, my faith doesn't seem so precious. Well, that doesn't mean it's over yet. You're here now. You're going to be alive when we leave. We can do something about it. But you could look at your life and say, how have I configured my time? Uh... Do I spend 37 hours a week on Pinterest looking at things that I want to get and looking for ways that I want to be? Well, then probably your faith's not that precious. If you're constantly digesting things that aren't going to embolden that faith, that aren't going to nurture the life of God in you, if you make a habit of not being with God's people, having no Christian friends who stir you to faith, to trust. You see, trust, that's what faith is. It's a kind of confidence. Martin Luther says faith is a living, daring confidence 
in God that's so great that you'd be willing to risk anything on it. Because you know it's just reliable. It's a, it's a tree branch that you can walk out on and you know it's not going to break. And even if it breaks, somehow it'll hold. It attaches you to the power of Jesus, which then creates a different kind of life in you. Is your faith precious? And then he goes on and say, says, as we just talked about, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, through his glory and through his goodness, God has given us very great and precious promises so that we may participate in the divine nature and may escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Peter's getting like a fundamentalist radio preacher now, isn't he? Escape the corruption of the world. But it's true, you see. He's not, he's not doing, he didn't talk like that. He didn't wag his fingers, I'm sure of it. But he says, he uses, you know, he's not stylistically very clever here. He talks about a precious faith, and now he's talking about precious promises. But he just realizes this is what I've got to live on here. This is what I've got to live on is the words of God. Words that create out of nothing. Words that say, let there be light and there's light. Words that say to our lives who have been shrouded in darkness, held under the sway of the evil one. He says, let there be light. And he makes the, makes the chains fall off and our hearts be free. But I wonder when I look at this and I think, what are the very great and precious promises that enable us to participate in the divine nature that helps us to escape the corruption of the world with its evil desires? Because some of you know you have evil desires and you know you're being corrupted by them. Corrupted. They're, they're, they're like a, a water problem in your flooring. And your life's getting weaker and weaker and saggier and saggier because there's no, nothing solid. There's a mold problem that's, that's eating up your walls of your life. You know you're getting corrupted and you think, how can, I, how can I get these promises that will help me to participate in the divine nature? And I think, why does he not tell us what the promises are? Why doesn't he rehearse those promises for us? Do you know? I'm asking you, it's not rhetorical. Someone knows, tell me. Noah? Okay. Well, here's my thought on this. It may be that it's just obvious, but maybe he doesn't tell us in the same way that Paul doesn't tell us what his great thorn in the flesh was. So that it can be more applicable to a lot, or, a lot or more situations. <laughs> Look that up. There's, it's in dictionary.com. It's going to be the word of the year next year, Oxford's word, new word of the year, lotter. Uh, see, I have no idea where I am now. If you make up words, you forget the real ones. Okay, so great and precious promises, divine nature. Oh, why doesn't he tell us what the great and precious promises are? It seems like that would be cool to know so I could have the divine nature. Well, I was recently reading an article by Dave Pallison who wrote about the process whereby we become like Jesus. And one of the things he said that's so very helpful, and it really resonates with me, is this whole idea that for a lot of people, a lot of different ways, acting with God, the truth of the scriptures, 
other people, other Christians' lives, against their suffering, their experiences. There's all kinds of ways that we grow. And you look at your own life. How have you come to faith if you have it? Or if you're here today, how did you come to get here today? What was the journey that led you to even be interested enough to bother to want to be here more than in bed this morning? Or even if you wanted to be in bed, it made you get up enough. You thought, well, I'm going to come for some reason. You, maybe you thought you'd get hurt or injured. You'd get a flat tire if you didn't come tomorrow morning when you go to work. Or maybe you thought, I've got to have this. Why? Well, the all different processes. God works very individually in people. And it makes me start to think, hmm. He doesn't tell us what these very great and precious promises are. But maybe that's so that we'll, we'll scour for them ourselves. Because, see, the promises that resonate with me may not be the ones that resonate with you and, uh, as they say, vice versa. There may th- be things that get your, get your juices flowing that God says, and it may just be at different times that this happens. And I hear that, I'm like, oh, nothing, it's not doing anything for me. But I find something, and it does something for me. I had, a, I had a friend, in the last service I mentioned their name, and I realized, ah, they probably don't like this to be mentioned, so I won't mention their name. Their family was there, though, so now you've narrowed it down, you're thinking, who is it, could, could it be? I had a friend whose wife was pregnant. I've had a lot of those. And this was, well, I can't say any more defining characteristics, you know who it is. Okay, so I had a friend whose wife was pregnant. And this woman is not a woman who I would normally associate with hanging out at the Bojangles, okay? But this woman, in the state of pregnancy, she found herself with these inexplicable and insatiable cravings for a Bojangles sausage biscuit. I got to get me a sausage biscuit from Bojangles. And any man who has an insatiable pregnant wife knows that he must obey with quickness and without delay. And I think when you start to realize that God is the one who is going to be able to cultivate something in you, that you're not going to actually be able to know yourself until you know the one who made you, that he holds the keys to you, that he is the one who has the words of life, and that he's the one who gives abundant life, and you start to get some sense of it, even if you don't fully believe it, you think, man, that sounds enticing. Precious promises, a faith that's precious, inexpressible joy. That's another thing he talks about back there. You're like, inexpressible joy? What on earth is that? But it sounds mighty good. Maybe I need to be like a pregnant woman in search of a Bojangles biscuit. I need to go to the scriptures, and I say, Jesus, give me some promises that I can scrounge up for myself and I can scarf down to satiate my thirsty, hungry belly of faith. You know, she'd need that because she had another life in her. It's the other life in her that's craving the Bojangles. I'm not advocating Bojangles. Do what you want. But there's another life in you that's craving the promises of God. That's why you pray. That's why you worship. That's why you, you confess your sins to each other. That's why you memorize scripture. That's why you scour the scriptures because in them you find life. They point you to the one who gives life. And I think about ones in my own life, precious promises. They happen sometimes sporadically. Just this week I was reading to the boys at bedtime who sinned. The story of a man born blind. Well, everybody around would have known it was a common thing. Of course, 
he's born blind, then he must have sinned, or maybe his parents cheated on their taxes one too many times. They didn't report all their income, and now he's born blind. That's how you think God works, a lot of you. Well, that's how they thought he worked, too. And they said, who, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And you know what Jesus said? Ha! Neither. He says, let me tell you what. Here's why this man's blind. So that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And I heard that. And at that moment, I've heard that story before. You've hopefully heard that story before. I've read that story before. I think I've preached about that story before a a number of years ago. But in that moment, wrestling as I am with people who are suffering, who are bruised and battered by the fall, who are getting ground down by the wheels of living, who are feeling the exhaustion in my own body, I think, ah, there's a mantra that I can hang on to for a minute. Oh, Lord, make the work of God evident in our lives, in the lives of those who are dealing with awful things that they don't want to be there. Make the work of God evident in their lives. You see, these promises, they become precious when they, they ignite with a need. When you're hungry like a pregnant woman looking for a biscuit. Reese, I appreciate that laughter. And you too, Hank. You both are going to get a Hershey's kiss afterwards. If someone can find some in the church somewhere. There's candy somewhere. My kids get it. I don't know where it comes from. Thank you very much. That was the appropriate response. You giggle until you can't control yourself anymore. I think also, maybe like you, I've had these moments where I think, I'm probably not even a Christian. I mean, look at me. I, I, my, I'm so petty. I'm so self-centered. I, I have these, these moments where I'm just so cold-hearted. I get so angry inside. I've got this stuff about me that doesn't seem to change. I want it to change so bad, and I can't make it change. I see other people, and I think, I'm so, I, I, I'm so cold and I sometimes think, maybe, maybe I don't even know Jesus. Maybe I'm not even his. Maybe I'm not even a believer. But then I hear a precious promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And I start to hear that. And it ignites at the moment with my sense of, I've got to... I've got to figure this out. I'm hungry as a pregnant woman looking for a biscuit. I need to know, do I belong to Jesus or not? And I come to him and I say, Jesus, you said, you said, if I come to you, you'll never turn me away. Ha! So here, I'm here. I'm coming to you. So you said you'd never turn me away. And you said, if I'm coming to you, I wouldn't be coming to you unless you were drawing me. So there, you can't turn me out, Jesus. You said you wouldn't turn me out. And the preciousness of the promise gets appropriated. Look at all that alliteration. The preciousness of Jesus' promise, they come alive in real time. But you've got to be interacting with it. The preached word of God, you've got to memorize the word of God. You've got to be familiar with the word of God. You've got to scour it. You've got to ask God, please, you've got to pray to him to nurture this life. It's going to involve some effort, you know. The Christian life has effort. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Make every effort to add, to confirm your calling and your election. Be eager to make your calling and election sure. I heard a story this week about a man in India. I just saw the headline. I thought, this is so funny. 
A man, who had, a man was finally fired after he did not report to work for 24 years. It was just a quarter of a century. Come on. Don't be unreasonable. There's going to be an appeals process. I just thought, what a ridiculous story. And the story went on to say in India, there are a lot of bureaucratic civil servants who, who come in late and they go f- play golf during the day and nobody seems to mind. And this particular guy just figured he'd go home for 24 years. I don't know if it's true, but it's funny. And I think some of you don't know God like you wish. Because you went home for 24 years. How could that guy really think he has a job when he hasn't been there in 24 years? It seems to me that a lot of times people who say, I need Jesus to be precious to me. I want these words of scripture to be true to me. I want them to come alive on me. When you start to expect that maybe that might happen, and you start to give yourself to it, you start to rearrange your life and say, I've got to make some changes so that I can put myself in the way of these things. Because I'm a pregnant woman looking for a biscuit, and I've got to get a divine biscuit to satiate what's going on in me. It's going to take some effort for these promises to become precious, but, but it's an effort well worth it. And he says, if you do this, these very great and precious promises let you participate in the divine nature and escape corruption in the world. And this is the last point. Where Peter does sound like a fuddy-duddy, he sounds like a man you might catch on the AM dial, letting people know they're going to hell, is that he's telling us something that's really, if we can be honest for a second, it's kind of refreshing. He says, you know what, here's the Christian view of people. Our anthropology is a fancy word of saying, here's how we think people are. We believe that they're like a, a well... They're like a a grand old neighborhood that the hipsters haven't gotten to yet and gentrification hasn't occurred there yet. So there's some really amazing old churches, but they're graffiti eyes and the stained glass is busted out. And so you've got to have some vision to see what it can become. It was once this grand feature, but now it's just kind of a bunch of dilapidated buildings where crack addicts hang out. The Christian story is that we're made in the image of God, of course, but that We've got this terrible God allergy. And now anyone who sins, that means anyone. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin, says Jesus. The Bible talks like that a lot. Mastery. The things that you, the desires that you obey, they are the ones that control who you are. Now, you are hearing and imbibing and reading things all the time that tell you If you have a desire, if you have a desire, it is violence to your personhood not to obey it and to cultivate it. And the Bible says that's not true. See, a lot of your desires are evil. Any desire that doesn't push you towards God, that doesn't make you more fully human, is not from him. Your desires lead you astray very frequently. They're a lot, they're bad masters, you see. You may not realize this, but St. Augustine said this, a good man may be, the master, may be mastered by one person. A Christian may be mastered by God. We're his servant. But a bad man, even though, a bad king, he says, even though he submits to no man, 
has as many masters as he has bad habits. Think about this for a second. When you are mastered by your desires, you wake up each day and you are going to be just like a, a really small child who's just like caught up like Dorothy in a tornado. You don't know which way you're going to go. You want something real bad, you have no control over it, and you do it. You have an urge, someone says something to you and you don't want to repeat it, you don't want to come back at them, but you feel so good to say it. So you just say it. You're being mastered. It's been a hard day, you come home and you, you do some therapeutic retail therapy on the Amazon and you do one-click shopping, you got a carousel. Of new clothes coming your way. Cashmere, take me away. (laughs) Handbags and new shoes and fancy coats. New kitchens is what I need. These desires, they, they just lure you away. Things you should see or things you should do or not do. And these desires just, they make you say, I've got to obey them. But see, these desires, they don't care what you become. They're bad masters. They just want to see somebody destroyed. They're just, like, they're just like people who watch MMA fighting. Have you watched mixed martial arts fighting? Some of our elders here had me watch it one time. It's terrible. There. That's what God thinks about it. It's terrible. I'm just kidding. I don't know what God thinks about it. But have you seen it? Nobody cares about the people. They're there to see somebody's jaw be smashed in with someone's foot. And see, that's what your desires want. They don't care how you do. They just, they just want to lead you into the ring and just see somebody get smashed up because it's fun. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But the good shepherd comes to give life and life abundant. So one of the things you've got to do is not give way to these desires. You realize you have this divine nature in you, this Holy Spirit in you that you've got to cultivate. Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, it will be done. This will be to my Father's glory that you should bear much fruit. That this life produces another life out of you. So one of the things you've got to learn to do is engage in the ironic process theory. Which I, I won't explain. You all know what that is. You don't know what that is, do you? The ironic process theory? You do know what it is. We've talked about it before. You just haven't heard it this name. It's the whole idea is if I say here today, do not... Think about pink elephants. You've heard me say this before. If I say, don't think about pink elephants, whatever you do, don't think about pink elephants. Please don't think about pink elephants. Or you can make it white bear, el oso blanco. Don't think about white bears. Don't think about purple rhinoceroses. Whichever. But see, the whole idea is anytime you try to suppress an unwanted thought, you have evil desires revving up in you, I tell you this, the way to escape them is not to rehearse them is not to make, spend all your energy trying not to think them. If you have a, a commitment to not eating chocolate cake and you set a chocolate cake right in front of your face, and you say, do not eat that chocolate cake, do not eat that chocolate cake, do not eat that chocolate cake, let me make a guarantee to you. You will not only eat the chocolate cake, you will eat the package in which it is housed. <laughs> because all you're doing is rehearsing what you, what you are forbidding yourself to do. We're made to run on desire. We're made to run on loves. We've got to change our loves. We've got to reorder our loves. That's why Jesus says, come to me. 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. I will give you rest. I give you abundant life. Precious promises. Precious faith that links you to Him. So you've got to displace your desires. You don't just say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Oh, I hope I don't have any more of these bad thoughts. I hope I don't have more of these bad thoughts. You will have them. Turn your attention away from them. Go to Christ. Scour for promises. Engage in service to others. Displace it by not not saying, I'm not going to think about this, by engaging your mind and your imagination with someone else. Are the precious promises, are they precious? Is your faith precious to you? Are you experiencing in some way this divine nature that can protect you from evil desires that really hope to smash you up? Well, the Peter knew this. And he, at the end, says, you know what? If you're not growing, if you're not adding to your faith goodness and your goodness, you're not adding to that knowledge and knowledge, self-control and self-control, perseverance and perseverance, godliness and godliness, brother kindness, and et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to love, then it means you've forgotten something. And that something you've forgotten is best illustrated by a show I've been watching called Longmire. Has somebody seen Longmire? All right. So Longmire is a story that's loosely based on the character called Dick Griffith at our Lula Lake site. (laughs) If you don't know Dick, sorry. If you do know Dick, congratulations. This show is, is a representation of Dick. Walt Longmire plays a sheriff in Big Sky Country. In Absaroka County, Wyoming. He's leathery. He's courageous. He's incredibly and strangely well-read. There's nothing he doesn't know about, and you can't pull one over on him. And, much to his dismay, there's a murder in his town every week. But it makes for good TV. Well, there's this one episode where this, this man who always gets, always gets the criminal... There's been an arson in a barn. There's been a death, but there's also been the burning of horses. And one gets saved, and Walt Longmire is fierce, but he's also compassionate. He's got a soft place in his heart for the equine, for horses. (laughs) And the horse has been burned. He's at the vet, and he says to the vet, Doc, how bad is it? And the veterinarian says, well, Walt... It's not looking too good. She's got burns over 50% of her body, and who knows how badly her lungs have been damaged. And Walt pats her and says, Well, I always did prefer a long shot. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, send the bill to me. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, send the bill to me. Peter says if you're not growing in your faith, it's likely that you've forgotten you've been cleansed from your past sins. That you're interacting with the Savior who's so precious that you say, get away from me, I'm sinful. And he says, no, in fact, I'm never getting away from you. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, he says to God the Father, send the bill to me. 
And so Peter, being around someone like that, knows, oh yeah, what Paul said is right. He who began a good work in me, he's going to complete it. So even if I don't change as quickly as I want to, God's not going to give up on me. So I shouldn't give up on him. Because whatever it takes, whatever it costs, he says, send the bill to me, whatever it takes. Whatever it costs. Send the bill to me. Our God gives us precious promises and a precious faith that helps us escape the evil desires that are undermining us and destroying us so that we can participate in the divine nature. It is a nature that nurtures us and doesn't destroy us and says, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, send the bill to me. Run to this Savior often. Amen.